God is good. That wasn't very good. I, I hate to, you know, I hate to get persnickety here. Let's try it again. God is good. All the time. Hey, welcome, everybody. Welcome to those of you who join us online each week, and welcome to our CM campus. 20 years ago, I would have described myself as a night owl. Melissa, an early bird. She was awake a couple hours each morning while I was still asleep, and I was awake a couple hours each night when she was fast asleep. I usually worked 70-hour weeks back in those days, and to be frank with you, I stayed up late every single night so I could just have a minute for myself. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, just good habits. I had to carve it out of somewhere, and so I just carved it out of the night. Uh, Not shockingly, I got up every morning as late as I possibly could. Back then, I was about a, I don't know, 10-minute turnaround, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not that you couldn't look better if you didn't spend longer at it, it's just you don't care anymore. And so it's about a 10-minute turnaround for me, and, and you know, I, I would do it, and boom, off I would go. A lot of times, uh, without really saying much of a word to Melissa, one morning, we had the worst of all situations. Melissa had awakened early, about 4 o'clock in the morning, and she was going down the stairs as I was going up the stairs to go to bed. We passed each other. I used to hear ad nauseum about morning people. Right? Morning people just have an air of superiority, don't they? They're so gleeful early. And I used to hear ad nauseum about morning people, how they cheerfully wake up at zero, dark, 30, and spend time with God. And I always figured it was either their natural disposition, or they were just doing it to annoy me. I didn't know which, but I kind of figured it was one of the two. And then one day, Melissa confronted me that our time arrangement wasn't working for her. Any of you... Are married? Have you ever had your spouse just kind of inform you that this isn't really working for me? If you're not aware, that is a problem. It, it's a problem. It's not a tension to be managed either. It's a problem to be solved. Uh, man, a lot of, if I was going to give you advice in marriage, and let me tell you, I don't give much, but I would say this, know the difference between a tension to be managed and a problem to be solved. That was a problem to be solved. And she said, we don't really talk. And our relationship was suffering. And I possibly didn't notice because I guess our relationship was suffering. And she said we needed to spend more time together. And honestly, that sounded really good to me. It's just when would that happen? And the one thing I knew for sure is that she wasn't going to start staying up late. That, that's the one thing. Isn't it good to know in a marriage, you know, kind of what are the constants and what are the variables, right? I knew that she was not going to stay up late. That was not going to happen. And as a result of her being right yet again, I rearranged my schedule and I started getting out of bed at six o'clock sharp every morning to have coffee with Melissa, every morning, except Sunday where I get up earlier 
to get to church. We've been doing it for years and years and years now. And though I'm not going to go on about it, it really has become my favorite time of day. I look forward to spending 45 minutes with Melissa every single morning. You may be wondering, how, how did you do it? How did you do it? How did you make the paradigm shift after 25 years of marriage? How did you do it? What is the secret? Well, as it turns out, the secret was much as I suspected. I set my alarm clock for 6 o'clock each morning, and when it goes off, I get out of bed. And guess what happened? Once I started doing this, everything else adjusted. I was tired earlier all of the sudden. And everything else adjusted. If you hear nothing else tonight, I'll give you a little life lesson. If you do the important things and put them first, everything else in your life will adjust to them. But if you don't put the important things first, you'll never get around to them. That's why it's so important to say, hey, we're going to be a church. We're going to be a church. This is an important thing. You say, well, I don't have time to go to church. No one has time to go to church. We just come to church because it's important to us. And then you build other things around that. So build the big stuff in. Everything else will form around it. These days, I really... Go to bed early. It's embarrassing sometimes. I dread the time changing. I mean, anybody else ever been watching Lester Holt and wonder how you're going to stay awake until 6 o'clock? I mean, that happens to me on occasion. It happens. I couldn't sleep in these days if, if I wanted to. I have completely readjusted. My body is completely readjusted based on priorities. I guess the secret wasn't much of a secret after all. I just needed to live into it. Paul is widely considered the greatest Christian evangelist in the history of the world. In Acts 7 and 8, we meet a zealous Pharisee named Saul who saw the Christian movement as a threat to Judaism, and he began systematically persecuting Christians. He was a blight to the Christian church. The shift began when God prompted a man named Ananias to meet Paul in Damascus on Straight Street. And he said, you pray for his healing. And Ananias protested the ping. Have you ever gotten a ping from the Lord and and you asked for a second opinion? (laughs) Ananias, God said, Ananias, there's a guy named Saul. He's going to be on Straight Street. You go meet him. He's going to be blind, and you lay hands on him in healing. And Ananias goes, I know who Saul is, and God, no offense, but why would I want to do that? Why would I want to do that? He'll just unleash his fury on us all over again. Lord, why would I want to do that? And then God assures Ananias of two things in verse 16 and 15 and 16. First of all, God was going to use Saul to reach the Gentiles. Talk about a long shot. You're going to take the most zealous Jew ever, and that person is going to reach the Gentiles? 
And the second promise was that Saul would pay a dear price for being used by God. Both prophecies were fulfilled. In chapter 9, Saul converts, he changes his game, he changes his name, and he morphs into a uniquely equipped apostle who effectively took the good news to his world. I was thinking a lot about Paul this week. Paul is born up in Tarsus, which is up north of Damascus. Uh, He's wealthy, enfranchised. We know that because he is Jewish, but he's a Roman citizen. You have to buy those. They were unbelievably expensive. So Saul really... This, this whole God thing kept making his life get more complicated. I mean, he could have just stayed up in Tarsus and been a, a rich guy. You know, a little uptight, but a rich guy. But no, he goes down to Jerusalem and, and he, he studies at, at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of their day. And, and he becomes a, a fixture in the temple establishment. And then the Christians arise and, and he becomes a zealot. He's protecting the true faith. And then God knocks him off his high horse, somewhat literally, and, and blinds him. And then, then he's healed. And then God does these prophecies over him. And with every ping that Saul says yes to, his life just gets harder and harder and harder. We have this idea that if God pings us, our lives are going to get easier and easier and easier. I hate to tell you this, and I'm sorry if you heard it here first, but there's really no biblical precedent for that. When God calls us, our lives get more difficult. They get more challenging. And that's exactly what happened to Saul, who became Paul. Paul left a successful life to become a persecuted follower of Jesus Christ. There were only two things in it for him. Suffering and glory. When we adopted our second rescue dog, she was about three years old. She's part Mastiff and part Boxer, and there are times that she needs a rescue dog herself. She just kind of needs a support dog herself. Well, you don't really know this when you get them, and Melissa named her Coco, and I call her Coke or Coker or Coca-Cola because I'm never inclined to call the people close to me by their correct names. Never. (laughs) When Coke met Buff, also not Buff's correct name, they nearly tore each other apart. I mean, it was bad. It was really bad. I didn't think, but Buff's like 12. I didn't think she had that kind of energy. But let me tell you, they nearly tore each other apart. Well, when they finally got to where they could tolerate each other, Coke began to display a cacophony of physical issues that rendered her more expensive in two weeks than Buff had been in three years. I mean, Coke was costing us serious money. If your kids aren't sure what to do, be a veterinarian. (laughs) Seriously, be a veterinarian. It's awesome. So one day, Melissa got back from the vet, and she said, I'm going to the vet. And she got it back, and I said, how much did it cost? Because I know how much vets cost, because we had a dog when I was a child. $25. (laughs) I know how much vets cost. She said, $250. I said, what? They totaled the dog. They just totaled the dog. 
And then she told me, well, she has a follow-up appointment. And it's going to be another $250. I said, why don't we just buy a car? Good night. So in the aftermath of this, I, I, I sit down and I just looked at Coke. I just got right down there and I just stared at her right in the face. I looked at Coke. And then I looked at Melissa. And then I looked back at Coke. And then I looked back at Melissa. And I took a deep breath and I said, Coke is in. She's in. So you do whatever you need to do, but she is in. Coke's part of our family now. And that being said, we still have work to do. Mm -hmm. We still have work to do. We're having a big event with our closest friends over the weekend. Family from across the state that been our best friends for 30 years. Their kids grew up with our kids, and we're having everybody over. Buff gets to stay. Coco gets boarded because Coco has some work to do. <laughs> but she's in. She's in. Let's take a look at, at Paul's world, because I want to give you an idea of where we are with uh, ancient Colossae. Here's Jerusalem. You do not want to be there right now. Here's Jerusalem. Here's Damascus. You never want to be there. All right? You come on up. You got Antioch, which probably had the largest church in the world at the time. Tarsus is the home of Paul. Then you got Cappadocia up here. All the way over here, you've got Ephesus. Uh, Colossae is right about here. It's right about here. You got Pergamum on up, but Colossae is a little south and a bit east of Ephesus. This is where this is taking place. With introductory remarks concerning Colossae and the sufficiency of Christ for salvation concluded, Paul is going to kind of reintroduce himself before he pushes any further down the trail. Paul realizes he's kind of on a razor's edge here. These people don't know him, and he's got a corrective message for them. And he just, he knows he's on a bit of a razor's edge because there's a question that he'd have to ask. Why would they care what I have to say? Why would they care? And Paul's working with this. So he kind of reintroduces himself just a little bit, but he's been so careful with the letter so far. And I think it's a really good lesson to us. It's always a good idea to celebrate and affirm before you correct. If you're going to correct somebody, if you've got a difficult word for them, something you feel needs to be shared, it's always best to celebrate them and affirm them before you give that message. Because affirmation has to perceive correction or people aren't going to be able to hear the correction. They're just not going to be able to hear it. Has anybody ever said something to you that was kind of hard to hear? They were completely right, but they said it to you in a way you, didn't, you weren't going to hear it and you weren't going to receive it. It wasn't that the information was incorrect. It's the way it was presented to you. And Paul's been really, really careful here. And so when God asks you to speak into somebody's life, you know, when you need to speak those kind of words, when you need to correct, when you need to teach, when you need to help develop, always make sure you open up with celebration and affirmation. And Paul's really done a nice job here. And even now, 
that he's this far end of the ladder. He's still kind of walking that line, which does bring up a point. Someone asked me, they said, are you going to get done with Colossians by Christmas? And the answer is absolutely, but it certainly won't be this Christmas, okay? <laughs> so what Paul's going to do here, he is going to give us kind of a three-point resume, and then he's going to use this resume as a springboard for revealing the true secret of the Christian faith, all right? That's how it's going to work. Three-point resume, springboard into the big secret, the big reveal. Number one, Paul has been faithful to God's call. It says, the good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. We closed last week with this idea. Paul's no novice. He's been at this a minute. He writes from prison. He's paid a price. He's mentored countless leaders. He's written a lot of letters. He's planted hundreds of churches. He has a significant body of work to his credit. You flip over the back of Paul's baseball card. There's some good stats on there. So I want to take another look at this closing sentence, and then we're going to continue down the trail. The phrase good news refers directly to the central message of the gospel. So when you hear the words good news, people have all kinds of stuff that flies into your mind. But what it means very specifically, very specifically, Jesus came to forgive sin and make us right with God. That is the good news. That's what it's about. There's nothing wrong with recycling, but recycling is not the good news. There's nothing wrong with being good, but being good is not the good news. There's nothing wrong with being kind and a lot to be said for being kind, but that is not the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he came to forgive sin and make us right with God. You get that right, everything else will align. Paul is God's appointed servant in the proclamation of the good news. And he's saying, I'm, I've been faithful to my calling. The fact that the gospel message has made it from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth, including Colossae, is a testimony to how widely the gospel has spread and Paul is a leading instrument of God in the spread of the gospel. Number two, Paul has paid a price for his faithfulness. That prophecy Ananias received has been fulfilled. It says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. This is a little hard to understand, so let's, let's drill a little bit. When I played high school football, they had a like a sign up in the locker room. It said, no pain, no gain. Prominently displayed. It communicated the assurance, at least in the coach's mind, that though two-a-day football practices in August were really, really difficult, and they might have even been worse than that, we were all suffering for a purpose. There would be an end game. We were suffering for, not just suffering. In our case, the ultimate purpose was bringing glory to ourselves, to our families, and most of all, to our community by what he hoped would be later accomplishments on the football field. Paul believed that his personal suffering was directly on behalf of the churches he represented and that he was an extension of the suffering of Christ. This served as both a reality and a metaphor because 
Paul's little s suffering is directly connected to the big S suffering of Christ. So if you're persecuted, if you suffer a little bit for your faith, your little S suffering is directly connected to the big S suffering of Christ. We are not just suffering, we're suffering toward. We often have this notion that any suffering we do for Christ is an indication we've done something wrong. Don't we? Right? We, we, we suffer, somebody's given us a hard time, uh, we just instantly assume that we have done something wrong. At the very least, we assume that it's an unpleasant part of the cost of doing business in a fallen world. I think when it comes to suffering, most of us kind of take the you get what you get and don't throw a fit attitude toward it. And that's at best. Paul looked at this whole thing really differently. He suffered precisely because he was doing something right. Isn't that a very different way of viewing things? He felt he was in prison because he was doing something right. Not wrong, right. In fact, his suffering was the evidence that he was in the right. And he's saying physical suffering is a price I am more than willing to pay. Paul would argue that since Christ's ministry was accomplished through suffering on the cross, his suffering actually continues the ministry of Christ on behalf of the church. So it's a reality, it's an illustration, and it's a metaphor. Number three, this letter, this letter is an extension of that calling. The letter is an extension of that calling. Verse 25, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming the entire message to you. Say entire message with me. The entire message to you. Paul is an appointed steward of the good news. Interesting word here, steward. A steward is someone authorized to act on the behalf of an owner, a proxy. Any of you ever been a power of attorney for someone? Or maybe you have some papers in, in a file that you could end up being the power of attorney for someone. If you are legally a power of attorney, in that moment, you have legal authority. You have been authorized to act in the best interest of the individual you represent. God has named Paul as a steward of the church. Paul is to act in the best interest of the Christ he represents by being a steward of the church. He is instructed to deliver the fullness of the good news of Jesus Christ to the church at Colossae, the fullness. Nothing will need to be added to what he has to say. Nothing dare be subtracted. One of the true beliefs I have is that as we study the Bible, God has given us everything we need in the Bible. I believe that. Everything we need to become the Christians God has created us to be is contained in the Bible. You don't need to add anything to it. Heaven knows you don't want to subtract anything from it. It's there. It is there for us. Verse 26 and 27. His, this message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but has now been revealed to God's secret or to God's people. 
Paul is the perfect messenger to bring the good news to the Gentiles because there are no ulterior motives. There's simply nothing in it for Paul. There's just nothing in it for him. Proclaiming Christ did not make Paul's life easier. It made Paul's life harder. Paul is not trying to get a ticket into heaven. He was a strict Pharisee. He already had one. In his understanding, I mean, he, he wouldn't have been near the front of the line. He would have been kind of at the front of the line. I mean, he was a strict, zealous Pharisee protecting the true faith. He would have been at the front of the line. He's not taking the gospel to the Gentiles trying to get a ticket into heaven. He's already got one. He is announcing that the once exclusive tickets that he paid so much for are now available to everyone and there's nothing in it for him. Nothing. Nobody's going to appreciate it. You see, a heresy had taken root in Colossae that not only was there more to following Jesus than the rank and file people knew, there was a heresy that only a few special individuals kind of had the secret sauce. Paul is specifically stating that anything that was a secret in the past has now been fully revealed. The secret has been revealed. His implications are revolutionary because he's saying salvation has now been made available to everyone. The big secret is now public domain. Think about all the secret recipes out there, right? All these Products, you know, have, have secret recipes and they, they guard these things so tightly. I was reading a couple weeks ago about the history of Dr. Pepper, the soft drink. You say, why would you possibly do that? Let me tell you something. I am a nerd, all right? I mean, I, I was reading it, feeling the weak sauce drip off the leaves of humanity while I'm doing this. Anyway, when they first came up with Dr. Pepper, it actually came out just before Coca-Cola. And you're starting kind of the, what I'm going to call the soft drink wars. But in the early days, they didn't really say, this is great because it tastes good. They said that this was helpful. It, it, it improved your health. And you, you know, throw a little cocaine, caffeine, sugar and stuff, all kinds of things happen, right? And so you get all this stuff kind of flying around in these drinks. And, and before long, the secret was and then people begin to leak rumors about the secret. And then people would consistently leak rumors about the secret. They'd gaslight all day long, even before people knew what gaslighting was, other than you lit gas lights. And so they did this all of the time. And before long, guess what the big rumor was with Dr. Pepper? It contained prune juice. It contained prune juice. Not only did it make you healthy, it can make you healthy really fast when you weren't expecting it. <laughs> the secret. The secret. Paul's saying the secret held by the prophets, the secret of the Old Testament, has now been revealed. It's now been revealed. The secret hidden, guarded for centuries. It's now public domain. It's accessible to everyone. 
For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. I cannot tell you how revolutionary this statement was. I, I cannot tell you how revolutionary this statement was. When I was a kid, we used to sing a hymn called, He Included Me. Does anybody ever hear that hymn? Maybe I dreamed it. So we, were, we used to sing this hymn called, He Included Me. And it, it said, And when the Lord said, Whosoever, He included me. And it was a hymn of celebration that we Gentiles got dealt in. We were the rescue dogs. And Jesus looked at us. He goes, you're in. You're in. We've got some work to do, but you're in. He included us. To drive his point home, Paul points out that in the past, yes, salvation belonged exclusively to the Jews. They were the special recipients of the relationship with God promised to the descendants of Abraham. But that was not the whole of God's plan of salvation. It was only the beginning. The Old Testament doesn't give us the whole plan. It just gives us the beginning of the plan. And so Paul's not saying the Jews have the wrong plan. He's saying they didn't have the whole plan. God's intention from the start was to bring salvation to Jews and Gentiles alike. The ancient prophet spoke of this reality And now the big secret is revealed. It's like all those house shows, right? You see all those house shows on on the channels where they go into a house and everything looks terrible and then then they fix it up, right? Like all in 30 minutes. And they fix it up and and then they have the big reveal. The the big reveal is kind of, yeah. So this is kind of drum roll, please. The big reveal. What is the big secret? What is the big secret? Here you go. Here you go. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. That's the secret. Christ lives in you. Jesus does not just live in heaven. He lives in the hearts of humanity. Jesus does not just live in the heart of Judaism. Jesus lives in the heart of all who will receive him. Jesus isn't up there. He's in here and in you. And then he says something incredible, and this gives you assurance of his glory. If our salvation is based on how well we live for Jesus... We're always going to come up short. Can I hear an amen from somebody? Our spirits will be forever tripping over our flesh. And any notion of assurance will be directly tied to our present performance. So when we're really tracking with God, we're going to feel a lot of assurance in our salvation. And when we're not tracking so well, we we may feel a lot less assured. You see, if salvation is based on Jesus living in us, then we lean into his faithfulness and not our own. Jesus lives in you. Hear it again. If salvation is based on Jesus living in us, we lean into his faithfulness, not our own. He has taken up residence in us. He is the faithful tenant in us. If assurance, however, of our salvation is based upon us living in Christ, we're going to be in trouble. Especially if our assurance is based upon our performance. Because we're not always going to get it right. Sometimes we'll stumble and sometimes we'll fall. 
And Paul is saying that because Christ lives in you, you can have assurance of your salvation. You don't have to go to bed every night wondering if you're going to go to hell. You can have assurance of your salvation. Why? Because Christ lives in you. And it gives you assurance of sharing his glory. You see, assurance, true assurance, rests on Christ and Christ alone. It can't rest on us. It rests on Christ. Verse 28. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. I think this single sentence is really, really powerful. It gives us four steps to being an effective church. So here's what we got to do. We got to get people saved. So that's what the 500 is all about. On your way out, there are some packets. These are kind of reloads, refills for you, right? They're refills, and they got some things that are coming up. Grab a packet. But the first thing we got to do is we got to get people saved. The second thing we got to do is once people get saved, we got to keep them on the right path. Third thing we got to do is we've got to instruct young Christians in how to become mature Christians. And then finally, we just got to do it all over again. So let's kind of break this down. We've got to do evangelism, invite people to church, invite people to Jesus. Then we have to prophetically, prophetically say to them, this is how you stay on the trail. This is how you do this for the long haul. Then we have to teach people to become mature Christians. We can put that two ways. We have to teach people to abide in Christ. We have to teach people how to mature in Christ. And then finally, we just got to repeat. Evangelism, prophecy, teaching. That is the cycle that Paul gives us. To what ends? I think it's a great question. We do this to what ends? That we may be presented to God in the fullness of Christian maturity. Paul writes because he wants the Christians in Colossae to be fully ready to meet Christ when the time comes. He says we want to present them to God perfect in their relationship with Christ. The Greek word translated perfect means fully mature. As Christian people evangelize, prophesy, and teach the world, relationships are formed, sculpted, shaped, and perfected. Paul's end game is to present the Colossians to God with their relationship with Christ fully developed. My aim as your pastor is to present the people of Christ Church to God with their relationships fully developed. And the only way I know to do that is to teach the word of God verse by verse and precept by precept and principle by principle. It's the only way I know to build this thing is to do it God's way. And God's way is a little slower. You know, you can build something fast or you can build it well. And I want to build this well because I want you to be ready to meet God. That is my heart's desire. It's my call. It's my passion is to have you ready to meet God. Some of you may get really bad news this week. I want to have you ready to meet that bad news head on. Some of you may get really great news this week. I want to have you ready to praise and give glory to God. When it comes time for us to leave this earth or if Jesus shows up and, and just boom, we, we got that rolling out of nowhere. Man, I want to have you ready 
to meet Christ. That's the end game, that when it's time to stand before God, we are ready. That is the end game. So there's a little bit of a sign on this. No pain, no gain. We put the time in now, so we'll be ready then. Closes, verse 29. And that's why I work and struggle so hard. Depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. The Greek denotes the kind of hard work and struggle that occurs in an athletic contest. I just love that. Athletes not only represent themselves. As I said before, they they represent their families. They represent their regions. Victory for any one athlete brought glory to everyone they represented. So any struggle, suffering, or hardship inflicted by the training process or incurred in the contest itself was done on behalf of everyone they represented. So the one sacrifice to bring glory to the many. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about how God has called us all to lead. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about how God has called us all, not just to make sure we're ready to receive Christ and we're prepared to stand before God, but how can we help other people get ready? Just as perhaps God has used people to touch your life, how might God use you to touch the lives of others? We are the many. Christ is the one. We're in. We're in. Even though we cost a lot at the vet, possibly even occasionally poop on the floor, we're in. We're in. But there's still work to do. In every single one of us, there's still work to do. And that's okay. It's okay. It's okay that there's still work to do. Because that's why we have the church. And that's why we have each other. You see, the big secret isn't such a secret after all.